I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal, and today our guest is Austin Lee, an energy M&A partner at Bracewell in Houston. Austin, thank you so much for joining us. No problem, David. Glad to be here. We're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First, a little bit about your background. You were an accountant and then a landman before going back to law school and starting your practice. Then what you're seeing in the energy markets now, energy transition, which is a process that could take decades, what you're seeing in terms of oil and gas and midstream transactions. And then finally, a little bit about how you decompress from work. So with that, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you first came to law school and then came to have the practice you do. Sure. Yeah. Like you said, I went to undergrad at the University of Texas, came out with both an undergrad and a master's degree in accounting and took my CPA exam and began work as a CPA. And pretty soon after starting work, kind of realized that that was not really the profession I wanted to do long-term. And thankfully for me, there was a lot of opportunity at the time, given where the price of gas was, for people to go do land work out in the oil field. And I had a contact who knew I was going to eventually go to law school. I toyed with doing it earlier, but wanted to give the accounting route a test. But I'd taken my LSAT and told them, hey, you know, I'm going to be going to law school at some point, but I'd really like to do this just to get exposure to it. Sounds interesting. And the people who were in the profession that I knew in the landman profession were great. So he was nice enough to let me do that, knowing I was going to kind of roll off and go to law school. And I did it for a little over a year. I, I loved it. I had a great time. The people were awesome. There's a lot of transactionally focused work, but then there was a lot of title research for who owns what properties for all these oil companies that were leasing, taking leases on property out in East Texas. And so I would spend my whole week out there and then come back and live in Austin on the weekends. It was a pretty good way to buffer in between being an accountant and being a lawyer. Man, man is almost a term of art in the energy business. What does a land man do? And what's the role within energy and oil and gas? So the land function generally and land men, which includes both women and men, it is kind of a term of art, are generally charged with not only researching the title aspects of the different properties that oil and gas companies go take leases on or buy existing leases that are out there on. They actually negotiate a lot of the leases and a lot of the other kind of operational and sometimes transactionally focused agreements that oil and gas companies do. And There's a lot of law built up in being a landman. You have to understand oil and gas law. You have to understand property law. You have to understand kind of the different effect of the different terms of leases, of contracts, and really what you need to obtain as an oil and gas company in the way of title to a specific property or a lease on a specific property. You know, kind of the way I always analogize it to folks who clerk at our firm or who really don't have exposure to the space. Is, you know, if you valued Central Park, acre of Central Park, 120 stories tall for a theoretical office building, flip that Permian, one acre goes 1200 stories deep. And at every different depth that, you know, different formations under the surface, that acre could be owned by an unlimited number of people in an unlimited number of varying percentages because property is divisible in undivided interest. And so landmen go through 
least on the research side, they chain out the title way back when, you know, before oil and gas was severed from the surface estate, and they chain the mineral estate and the surface estate, and they chain that out to give the oil and gas companies an idea of, okay, the person I'm taking a lease from owns this percentage interest in these acres at these depths. And that all rolls up into eventually what interest that the oil and gas company owns in a well that is drilled on or allocated to that lease. And it kind of rolls up into the whole economics of the assets that the oil and gas companies have. You said in the year you did that job, you lived in Austin, but you would spend your week out in the field. So were you going to county courthouses, just researching title as far back as you could trace it? Yes, I was living. I'd go out to Crockett, Texas, live in a bed and breakfast, go to the courthouse every day. We had an office there where we'd pull documents from the courthouse and come back and compile them into abstracts that were sent to title attorneys or that were sent to the different companies that we were contracted for because I was working for an independent group of landmen that would get contracted out to different oil companies. And then sometimes they would say, okay, that's great. Go take a lease. And here are the different lease forms that you can use. And we'd have to go locate the landowner, go over there and kind of sell them and try and negotiate a bonus and go get approval for that. You have different royalty and bonus and different economic incentives that are parts of those leases. So, I mean, it really is a transactionally focused job that was really very good preparation for being an energy M&A attorney. So when you went back to law school at University of Texas at Austin, you had a very good idea or a much better idea than the average law student of the practice you wanted to enter. I did. Yeah. I just kind of fell in love with it. I, I liked the people. I liked you know the fact that when you're out there, instead of just looking at a balance sheet or a, a set of financial statements like I was for being a tax accountant... There was just something more tangible about going out and seeing a piece of property and the fact that they're drilling into it and pulling energy out of the ground in oil and gas. And yeah, you know, there's just there's a spirit to the industry of risk taking, of doing deals and in forging relationships that I think it's not in every industry that's out there. And, and it's something that I was comfortable with, felt like I was good at. And yeah, I just rolled right into Texas knowing I was going to take a bunch of oil and gas classes and probably end up in Houston because that's where the energy M&A capital of the world is. So, And so talk about the development of your practice from the time you graduated from law school. Sure. So I came to law school and clerked at a number of different firms and really found a home at Bracewell just because they're an energy-focused firm at every level, every practice. So it was definitely a spot for me and I had great mentors and friends that were working there. So I clerked for two summers at Bracewell, went straight to Bracewell. And it was a great time because, you know, the shell revolution had kind of started to take hold. And this is about 2009. When did you graduate from law school? 2009. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the shell revolution had started a little bit earlier than that. But as I was coming up and starting as an associate, my practice kind of got going. You know, there was just a ton of transactional work. and when you do these M&A in the energy space or in the traditional upstream energy space is oftentimes done through asset acquisitions. So A and D, or you know, sometimes it's done through entity acquisitions for various reasons. But in all these deals, you're effectively buying a set of assets. And a lot of the issues deal with title. And you know, that's, do you own what you're telling me you own? And so my expertise as a landman was really very applicable. And there was just, a, there was a lot of 
revolution going on in the energy M&A space because you had a lot of private equity money entering the space and sponsoring up a bunch of teams of people who oftentimes were my age, you know, that had been either investment bankers or engineers at oil companies or some conglomeration of those folks and some land folks. And, you know, they would get a hunting license to go buy a bunch of oil and gas properties. And oftentimes they would buy a bunch of leases or they'd buy an existing set of leases, drill a couple wells, prove it up and sell it off to the next guy, to a bigger company. And so there was a, it worked out great for me because there was a lot of folks my age who were making decisions about counsel, about deals who I knew. And, and it really gave me an avenue to come in and, and market myself to that community and develop some business early and, and just get a lot of exposure to a lot of different deals you know, big and small and everything from just selling something to joint venture arrangements where each party is going to contribute a certain amount of money and one person is going to be the operator of the wells. And that was kind of the focus of a lot of what I did for the first five or six years. In addition, I spent a year in-house at a company called Newfield that was great. They got bought up, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm back at Bracewell after about a year there. Then the industry started to shift. You had a couple waves of bankruptcies and price shocks. And then you had some constraints on the midstream side. So a number of the clients that I'd served for a number of years came to me with a lot more issues on the midstream side. So I've kind of changed my practice and was able to get a lot more experience. And for those who aren't really familiar, you have upstream, which is kind of getting it out of the ground, oil and gas development, think Exxon. And then you have midstream companies like Energy Transfer and Targa and Plains. And they basically take the gas in a pipeline or oil, and they process it, they move it, they take it to wherever it's going to be used. And then you have the downstream part of the energy chain and wherever the end use case, or if it's shipped off as LNG, that's kind of part of the midstream space, I guess, in a way. But as my clients' needs shifted, my practice shifted as well. And I was able to develop, get a lot of experience negotiating gas gathering agreements, crude oil gathering agreements, processing agreements, even recently, I've done a big JV with a midstream company where my client was an upstream company and they were kind of going in together to share the benefits of development of a big set of properties. So the, the industry kind of ebbs and flows as different needs come up and different economic situations present themselves and you grow with your clients. And that's one of the fun parts about being an attorney is that it's not static. It changes every day. So your practice demands a lot of industry-specific expertise. I mean, to a very detailed level, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, you have to know the underlying assets and the underlying project that you are selling or buying or creating an agreement around. And it calls into a lot of different disciplines that, you know, you're not an expert, you're not an engineer, you're not a geologist, but there's aspects of those things that creep into the, to the agreements and to the reps that you need to get for your client, the representations and warranties that a seller makes to a buyer, and really just the diligence and the information that you have to kind of facilitate your clients either providing or getting, depending on what side of the table you are. But, you know, I think that that's one thing that for those folks in law school who are looking at this, I mean, one of the things that I was told early on is you can't just be a, a good lawyer in this business. I mean, you, you've got to be a good lawyer. You've got to work hard and understand the law, but you've got to be an energy professional. You've got to understand the industry. You've got to understand what's happening from an economic perspective, from a technology perspective. And then 
at least have a good appreciation of what the different other disciplines really that are the foundation of for the upstream business. It's geology and engineering and finance and and all of these things kind of intersect. And it's a neat feature of the career path that I've gotten to enjoy is to be able to play and to appreciate and, and interact with all those different disciplines and professionals at all those different levels. You mentioned that you spent a year in-house at Newfield when you were an associate. What did you take from that experience and how did it affect how you interact with in-house counsel? I was a consumer of legal services instead of a provider of one for a little while. You know, you still provide services internally. But what you really learn is that your points of contact at these different clients they have their own clients, their internal clients, and they are dealing with deadlines and requests and asks and requirements that you know you may not appreciate as an outside counsel, and you may not fully ever know why you know, why something needs to be done on a certain timeline or why we're doing it a certain way, and it could roll back up to a relationship that the CEO has with the company that you're doing the deal across from, and. You know, it may not check every box, but you're aware of the risks and the company's fine with it. And as an attorney, you got to make sure they are aware of those risks. But all of those relationships, all of those different managerial relationships and structure within an organization shapes how they need their legal services provided. And you're there to provide those services in whatever flavor they need. And so it, it helped me become a better service provider, for one. And I made a lot of good friends and, and relationships. and. And really, the thing that it did for me the most was that's a fabulous career path going in-house at at a great company. It just wasn't for me. And it made me do a lot of thinking about what is the best business plan for my career, given what I wanted to do, some of the relationships I had across the energy industry and you know, for my family. And ultimately, that led me back to Bracewell. I mean, if I was going back to a law firm, it was going to be to Bracewell. But And thankfully, I had great relationships with the folks at Bracewell to allow me to come back. And it's been awesome. As you were comparing an in-house career and a career as an outside counsel, what were the advantages and disadvantages of both? And what kind of person do you think would really flourish in-house as opposed to at a law firm? Yeah. So a lot of the things that shaped my decision probably wouldn't necessarily apply to other folks, although some of it could be. I mean, a lot of it for me had to do with, I had a ton of friends in the business that were out there that could be potential clients or not friends, but not just friends, but contacts that I'd been around from my experience, either going to college at UT, being a landman, being an accountant, my time at Bracewell. And that just offered a better career path for me and it kind of accelerated career path. So that was kind of driving a lot of what led me back. I think in-house positions vary by company. Working at one of the majors at Shell or Conoco or Exxon, I mean, that's a totally different thing than working at an independent publicly traded company like Newfield was, you know, that's just smaller versus going and being an in-house counsel, either at a private equity fund that owns a ton of different interests in a ton of different companies or being an in-house counsel at one of those portfolio companies of a private equity firm. I mean, that's kind of the the array of options that you would have. For what I do, I'm not a corporate securities guy. So corporate securities for a public company, that's an ongoing part of the job for them. And I wasn't part of that 
side of it. So that's something that didn't really speak to my skill set particularly. But those are great jobs. I mean, they really are. And you grow with the company, you know everything about it, you do all their filings, you work with outside counsel on the corporate security side to make sure that you're in compliance with the SEC, all the other requirements. You do a lot of MA, you know, when it occurs, but it's different. There are places that do a lot of small deals or even a lot of big deals, but that's kind of the exception to the rule. Whereas if you're in a service provider, if you're in an outside counsel role, you do a deal and then you go do the next deal and then you go do the next deal. And it could be a Marcellus A&D deal and then a South Texas M&A deal and then a big gathering arrangement in Oklahoma. Or there's just a lot more transactions that you get exposure to. Now, it can be more demanding, although there's plenty of in-house roles that are you know a lot of demands put on you. But it's a different pace and there's different economics around them and there's different requirements around them, but you just got to kind of figure out the right thing for you. Talk about energy transition and how that's affected your practice in recent years and how it may affect your practice for the rest of, of your career. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, we've done a lot of thinking about that ever since, you know, the pandemic. It's kind of the pendulum has been swinging back and forth between ESG focus that the investment community has had and that the SEC has had and how that's going to ripple back through the universe of oil and gas companies that are out there. There's been some times where it's like, man, it feels like traditional energy is just going by the wayside as quick as possible. And then there's been some other things that have kind of swung the pendulum back. The Russia-Ukraine war and energy security coming back into focus and the potential shortages of gas over in Europe. And so I think that that's kind of emblematic of the industry. I mean, it bobs and weaves. I mean, it it moves around depending upon what's happening in the world. As far as the transition goes, I think the world is transitioning. There's no question about that. It's going to take a long time. The energy systems and the energy economies in the US and Canada and Europe and in Asia are kind of in focus on that. But the energy economies and the energy systems in Africa and India, they're kind of on a different pace. So I think that all of this will evolve. It's been evolving and it's going to be shaped by policy. It's going to be shaped by regulation and legislation, as you've seen from the Inflation Reduction Act. So I think that anybody entering into the energy business, one, should be ready to accept and be excited about a lot of these new transition technologies and the opportunities they offer. But I think they also need to have a realistic expectation about how fast all that stuff's going to occur what's going to be required to move our energy system over to an electrical-based one, if that's where we're going. Or I think it's going to be an all-of-the-above approach that we ultimately arrive at. But in the long haul, it's going to take decades for traditional energy to get down to such a small part of the system that it's no longer relevant. I mean, absent some crazy sea change in technology, which could happen, I guess, but I'm excited to know that the foundational technologies and oil and gas and even coal to some degree, most of those are going to be around for a long period of time. And they're going to help facilitate the transition over to these cleaner, hopefully more efficient, hopefully affordable, hopefully abundant, hopefully technologies that can be provided by safe and responsible countries that the world needs to move people out of poverty and to supply energy to all the different populations all over the world. Austin, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's always great talking with you guys, and I appreciate it. For Drinks with a Deal, I'm David Marcus.